Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Let's go ahead and open up in prayer where we will continue our worship through the studying of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you are to us. You are such a good God. You are such a good Father, as the song says. Lord, you love us so much, and you love us unconditionally. You love us so much, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and didn't just stop there, but he was raised as the scripture tells us, for our justification. And so, Father, I just lift up tonight's study. I pray that you'll be glorified. I pray for the gift of teaching. I pray for those of you who are watching. I pray for those of us who are in this room. It's only four or five of us. And I just pray, Lord, that, uh, that we'll remove. We won't allow any barriers to your word and uh, to the work you desire to do in and through us, in our minds and in our hearts, helping us to be more like Jesus. So again, we lift this time up to you, Lord. We pray for your glorification in and through this. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to open up to our new study. We are in the gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Mark. And so last week we finished our study in the letter to the Romans. And so now we're on a whole new adventure. So thank you once again for tuning in to this. You are here for the very first study on Wednesday night in the gospel according to Mark. And we're going to start with chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. But whenever we start a new study in a new book or letter of the Bible, we always like to start with an introduction. We like to give you some background information And also kind of set the stage for what to look out for as we go on this journey through the gospel according to Mark. And so what we need to remember is, is that Mark is one of the four gospel accounts. And so we have Matthew, of course, Luke and John, as well as this gospel that we're studying. And by the way, the word gospel means good news. And it's the good news about Jesus. It's the good news about his life. It's the good news about his ministry. It's the good news about the fact of his death on our behalf. He took the penalty for our sins. It's the good news about his burial and his resurrection. We serve a living Savior. It's the good news about the fact that because of Jesus, because of his accomplishments, Salvation is available to all. And so, again, this is the good news, the gospel according to Mark. And of the four gospel accounts, three of them are what we call synoptic gospels. And those synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called the synoptic gospels. Gospels because they present 
a common view. In fact, they cover many of the same events about Jesus' life, about his ministry, and in mostly the same order. So again, there are three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are the synoptic gospels. And Mark, by the way, is, is thought by many scholars to be the first gospel account written. Some have even dated it to the original 40s. As early as that, and many people believe that it was written between A.D. 55 through 65. And so we have this earliest gospel account here that is right before us in our laps. Maybe you have your paper Bible with you. That's awesome. Or maybe you're swiping on your device. But we have it right there before us, this awesome gospel. Now, this gospel was named after a human. His name, of course, is Mark. In fact, it is John Mark. And so he is the human that God used to write this gospel account about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. You see, John was his Jewish name, and Mark, of course, was his Roman or Gentile name. And so he's known as John Mark in the Bible, or sometimes, as we see here with the title of this book, just Mark. Now, the thing we need to know about Mark is the audience that was written to. It was written to a Roman audience. And it's generally agreed that Mark received much of his information from the apostle Peter. And so this, this man, Mark, here, in the scriptures, there, there's a few scriptures in there where he is named. And so... Thank God that there's some details recorded about this individual. Now, first of all, I've mentioned that he gained much of his information from the apostle Peter. And so, obviously, he was an associate of Peter. And even in 1 Peter 5.13, he is called my son. And so... The fact that he's called my son means that God most likely used the apostle Peter to share the gospel with him and to lead him to Christ. And so that's awesome. Now, he wasn't a part of the original 12, the original 12 disciples that we know of, or those 12 apostles. But again, he was an associate of Peter. Now, the scriptures also tell us that he's a relative of Barnabas, and you can find that out in Colossians 4.10. And he was also an associate of the Apostle Paul. In fact, he joined the Apostle Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey. And you can find that in Acts chapter 13. Now, prior to the Apostle Paul, Paul's second missionary journey, Mark actually became a point of contention between Barnabas and Paul. And the reason for that is that Mark left them, he pretty much left them hanging on that first missionary journey. 
And so Paul wasn't happy about that. But Barnabas was like, hey, let's, let's bring Mark with us. And so, again, that contention became so sharp that they split. But that turned out to be a blessing because the apostle Paul took Silas with him on another missionary journey, his second, and Barnabas took Mark. So now, instead of one missionary team spreading the gospel, now you have two. But the point I wanted to make there is that that Mark was an associate of Peter as well as Paul, and that he was a point of contention between Barnabas and Paul. And now we see here in the scriptures that he didn't just stay there as a point of contention. Maybe that time of disappointment where he left them in that first missionary journey, maybe that weighed on Mark. At one point it bothered Paul, but we see here in the scriptures, especially in 2 Timothy 4.11, we see that he became useful to the apostle Paul. And so that's a lesson there for us because some of us in the past have maybe messed up. Some of us in the past have maybe disappointed others or maybe disappointed ourselves or thought we disappointed God. But thank God that he is a God of second chances because we, again, we see Mark being restored and becoming useful to the apostle Paul. And another detail about Mark that is pretty interesting is that in Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52, there there seems to be some little detail there about an unnamed individual. And many believe that this person is Mark, the person God used to write this gospel account. Now, this, God, this message here or this scripture here that we see in Mark 14, verses 51 and 52, this actually took place in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was betrayed and arrested. And here's the detail that many believe is about Mark. It says, now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. So we see a bunch of details there about Mark. But there's one other interesting detail. And that is Mark had a mother named Mary. Of course, this is not the Virgin Mary. There were many Marys then, but his mother was Mary. So why do I mention her? I mention her because in Acts 12, 12, we see that it was in her house that the believers had gathered for prayer. And so some interesting details about this writer that God used. And as I mentioned Mark as the writer of this gospel account, I want you to keep in mind, in case you're, you're new in regard to the scriptures, in regard to the Bible, the Holy Spirit is the true author. This is the word of God. And Mark was the human instrument. But yeah, we see there that that this young man had prayer gatherings with the church in his mom's house. 
But as we come to a close or get close to the end of this introduction to this awesome gospel, I just want you to know that each of these four gospel accounts focus on something different about Jesus, a different focus. You see, Matthew presents Jesus as the king. Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man. John presents Jesus, that is the gospel of John, presents Jesus as the son of God. And we're going to talk about that term later, son of God. And Mark, the gospel that we're studying, presents Jesus as the servant. And so as we look at Jesus, the servant, we're going to see that Jesus is a man of action. We're also going to see that there's not going to be the lengthy teachings of Jesus that you will find in other gospel accounts. Instead, you're going to see a lot of his actions. And so it's focused more about what Jesus did. And so we'll see less of his lengthy or long teachings. And because Jesus was a man of action, you're going to see the word immediately or something like it as we study this book. And the application for us as we look to our Lord and to our Savior is that we too should be people of action. We shouldn't just be people who say good things, people who know the word and quote the word, say biblical things, but we should be people of action like our Savior. So with that introduction to the gospel according to Mark being done, we're going to jump into our study in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And we're going to see another character. We're going to start off with the character. His name is John, but this is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. So let's go ahead and get into our study for tonight, the main study for tonight. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of God. So let's review what the Son of God does not mean. And we're also going to see what it does mean. First of all, it is not a biological sonship. He was not created. Jesus, as the Son of God, always, always existed. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 1, we see this. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God. And many of you have this memorized. And the word was God. And so you see there that Jesus is not the son of God in the biological sense. Just like my son is related to me. My sons, my daughter are related to me biologically. And so that's not what it's talking about. Not a biological sonship, not created. Very important for us to remember. Instead, what happened in Bethlehem was that humanity was added to Jesus' deity. 
In other words, Jesus did not stop being God. He remained God, but added on a human body. He added on humanity, a body. And that was done through a miracle of God, through the virgin conception. You see that Mary got pregnant while she was a virgin. In John 1.14, it says this. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. The only begotten son means that he is the unique son of God. There is none other like him. So this son of God, not a biological son of the father, not created. At one point, he became flesh. He added humanity to his deity. And as we see in John 1, 14, we see this word became. The word became implies that his human nature had a beginning. His deity never had a beginning. He always was God, always will be God. But his human nature had a beginning. He became a man. And so what happened was, His divinity or his divine glory was veiled. His divine glory was veiled. It was veiled in that human body that he took upon himself in a miraculous way. Another thing that means about Jesus and taking upon himself humanity. So now he's fully God and now fully man. We see that he voluntarily did not use some of his divine attributes. Now, he still had those divine attributes. He didn't lay those divine attributes aside. So he still had them. There's even a scripture that that says that Jesus didn't need anybody else to tell him about man because he already knew what was in man. But then you also saw scriptures or a scripture that indicated that Jesus didn't know the timing of his second coming, but only the father did. Well, when we see those things that seem to contradict, does Jesus know all things or does he not know all things? We have to remember that he's fully God and fully man. And so he didn't, again, get rid of his deity or his divine attributes, but his glory was veiled and he voluntarily did not use some of his divine attributes. And and so what what happened was he restricted the independent use of his divine attributes. And so he didn't go against the will of the father in that. He submitted to the will of the father in using those divine attributes that he did not cast aside. That's an awesome savior. Thinking of us, the servant, humble, willingly limiting himself in a human body willingly submitting to the will of the Father and not independently using those divine attributes, which, again, by the way, he did not cast aside. And just to wrap that up, I like what it says in Micah 5, 2. It says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, 
from everlasting. And so that brings together what we've been talking about. That first of all, he's from eternity, from everlasting. But at a certain point in time, he took upon that human body and became, became that babe lying in a manger in the city called Bethlehem. And so we talked about what that sonship does not mean. When we say that Jesus is the son of God, we saw what it does not mean, that he's not the biological son of God, just like my children are biologically related to me. But what does this sonship show us when it does say that he's the son of God? One thing that it shows us is that there is a relationship between Jesus and God the Father. There's a relationship there. That's the first thing it shows us. It also shows us that there's some type of function there in the Trinity. And so there's one God who is co-eternal with the other members of the Trinity. You have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, so they're co-eternal. They have the same attributes, but it's one God, three in one. One times one times one still equals one. And so in this relationship with Jesus and the Father, and even with the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, we see relationship and we see functionality. Because within that relationship, within the Trinity, the triunity of God, we see that Jesus submits to the will of the Father. And so the Trinity is a mystery or the triune nature of God is, of course, a a mystery. And so we can think of different examples to try to explain it, but they're all going to fall short in explaining the eternal God, the God of the universe. But one thing that could probably help us when we think about the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is that the Father could be seen as the planner The son could be seen as the accomplisher, the one who carries out the will of God. And of course, the Holy Spirit, the applier. And so that's what the sonship shows us. It shows us relationship. It shows us that there's some type of function within the Godhead. But then when it says that Jesus is the son of God, it means that he is the son of the order of God. Of God. And it means that he possessed it, possesses the same nature as God the Father. So, whatever makes God the Father God, Jesus has that at the core of his being. He is God of very God. And so, he is the Son according to the order of God or possessing the same nature of God. And you see that same type of terminology when you see in the scriptures, the son of the prophets, especially in 1 Kings 20, 35, if you need a reference. And so sons of the prophets doesn't mean that these were biological sons of the prophets, but it means that they possessed the same nature of, or they were of the order of the prophets. And so that's another example of where you see that terminology, son of, being used. And so in short, 
just so we all are clear here. When it says that Jesus is the son of God, or when Jesus says that God is his father, it is a clear statement to the deity of Christ. Jesus is saying that he is God. And so by saying, hey, God is my father, when he's talking to the religious Jews, by saying that God is his father, they imply that to mean Jesus is saying, I'm God's son. And that's how they understood it. That's how the Jews understood it. And I'm not just putting words into their mouths. In fact, you can turn with me to John 5, verses 17 and 18. In John 5, 17, it says, but Jesus answered them. Who is them? Them is referring to the Jews who criticized Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath day. And he told that man to take up his bed and walk. They were criticizing him. And so Jesus said to them in John 5, 17, my father has been working until now and I have been working. And in John 5, 18, he says, therefore, and this is supports, this supports what I said earlier. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And so again, that supports what I said earlier, that that's how the Jews understood it when Jesus claimed that God was his father. He's claiming to be God's son. Therefore, it's a claim to his deity. It is a claim to him being God. Again, Jesus is God. But then there's something else in that first verse. And I know we're moving slow, but we want to take our time with this because this is the gospel according to Mark. And again, the gospel is about the main character, Jesus. And so we want to get something straight. And so we're taking our time a little bit. So still in verse one, there's a part that mentioned that he is the Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Notice it says Christ. Christ, by the way, is not his last name. If you're new or visiting or if you didn't, if you never knew that. Christ is not his last name. It is his title. In fact, Christ is the Greek equivalent of the word Messiah. You may have heard that term before. And so if Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah, then they mean the same thing. And what do they mean? They mean the anointed one. So Jesus is the anointed one. And so as Christ or the Messiah, he is anointed He's appointed, he's assigned to be savior. That is a spiritual savior. We need a savior as human beings because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the scriptures tell us that our sins separate us from God. And we cannot save ourselves. We cannot live a perfect life and save ourselves. We can't earn our salvation, so we're stuck. We are spiritually blind. We are spiritually broke. We cannot pay this debt. 
And the scriptures also tell us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, praise God, is salvation. That's the gift of God, salvation. He gives us life. And so thank God for that, and that life, that salvation of eternal life. That, that's given through Jesus Christ, that, that awesome gift. And so if you don't have eternal life, if, if you're not saved, I recommend to you tonight to make this the last night that you say that you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And so that gift of God is eternal life. It's available to all. But again, remember that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus paid it all for us. And so we thank him for that. Can't save ourselves. So yes, we need that spiritual savior. We need Jesus. And so as Christ Messiah, he's appointed, he's anointed to be that savior, to save us from sin, to save us from the penalty of death. And to allow us to receive that gift of salvation or eternal life in him. But he's also anointed or appointed or assigned to be king. You may have heard the phrase, he's king of kings and lord of lords. And one day he's going to come back visibly to this earth and he's going to reign. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to reign for a thousand years and believers will reign with him. And so he is the Christ, the Messiah, the the king. And the Jews expected him to reign in the first coming, to reign as king in the first coming. But the first time he came, he came to save. He came as the lamb who would die on our behalf, who would take the penalty of our sins. In verses two through five, and some of you are saying, thank God, it looks like we're making movement. We're making progress. Yes, we are. So thank God. So let's look at verses two through five. It says, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So that Old Testament quote in verse 2 is from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, if you want to write that down. And then the Old Testament quote from verse 3 is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And so you have a couple of Old Testament quotes there. And in verse 4, it says, John came baptizing in the wilderness or in the desert, and he was preaching or proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the remission or forgiveness of sins. Then all the land of Judea, that's the whole Judean countryside, and those from Jerusalem, they went out to him, and they were baptized by him, that is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, in the Jordan River, and they were confessing their sins. Now, there's some interesting details about this character that we call John the Baptist. First of all, in the scriptures, if you look in Luke chapter 1, we're not going to turn there, but you can write it down. John the Baptist, first off, was born to elderly parents. And it was through God's inter. 
intervention. And as you see the scriptures or read Luke chapter 1, you see that he comes from a priestly line. His father's name was Zacharias. And Zacharias was a priest. And his mother was Elizabeth. And it says that she was of the daughters of Aaron. And so the only people who could be priests had to be from the tribe of Levi and then from the lineage of Aaron, Moses' brother. And so since Zacharias was a priest, that meant that he was a Levi or from the tribe of Levi and then from the lineage of, lineage of Aaron. And of course, John the Baptist's mom was too. And so that's an interesting detail about this character is that he was born to elderly parents through God's intervention, and he was born through a priestly line. Another detail about this character, John the Baptist, that is, that is brought forth in the scriptures, is that John the Baptist and Jesus are actually relatives. In fact, the scriptures tell us that John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. We're also told about John the Baptist, that, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Again, check that out in Luke chapter 1 when you have time. And another fascinating detail about John the Baptist, because for those of you Bible scholars out there who read the Old Testament and, and you saw a character, a prophet by the name of Elijah, you're going to realize that John the Baptist is kind of similar, that his ministry is kind of similar to Elijah's ministry and character. And that was actually prophesied, so it's no coincidence. And so his ministry will be similar to this Old Testament prophet, this awesome man of God. And so those are a few details about this character we're introduced to in, in verses 2 through 5 in Mark chapter 1. And so as I mentioned earlier, this Malachi 3.1 that, that was quoted in Isaiah 40 chapter, uh, verse 3 that was quoted. And what I want you to know about those is, is these passages, as you can tell from the context in Mark chapter 1, actually tell us about John the Baptist, about his purpose. And what they do is, they, they give us a hint about a, a custom that used to take place because these verses tell us in, in verses 2 and 3 there, it says that, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So notice his ministry is to prepare the way of the Lord, to make the Lord's path straight. And so those two Old Testament scriptures, again, give us a hint about a custom that used to take place. And it involved the, the kings or these, these leaders with great importance from the east. And what they would do is send a representative ahead of them to prepare their way in a procession. And so they, were, they would clear the roads. They would remove stones. They would cover potholes. They would make the path smoother and cleaner to travel on. And so I'm sure those dignitaries, those kings appreciated that about those people they sent ahead of time to make their ways straight, to make their ways smooth. And in the same way, John the Baptist 
he ministered that same way to our King, Jesus Christ. You'll notice that some Bible scholars would call him the forerunner of Christ, and that's what he was. He was a forerunner of Christ. He prepared the Lord's way. He didn't clean or uh, smooth out literal roads so they could ride their chariots on, whatever the case may have been. But what he did was prepare the way to people's hearts by preaching a message of repentance. And he preached that message in the wilderness of Judea. If you look in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. And so that fills us in on that detail. And we're not going to turn there, but you can jot down Matthew 3, verse 1, where it says that he preached in the wilderness of Judea. And so he made the, the, the Lord's way easier or smoother to people's hearts by preaching that message of repentance in the same way that messenger would make the way of those, those kings from the east straight when they rolled on those roads. And so this word repentance, you may have heard us say that many of times. Repentance just means a change of mind. It's a change of mind of a purpose a person has formed or of something he has done. In this case, or to be specific, it's the change of mind in regard to sin. The person is turning away from sin and turning to God. And that's the type of message John the Baptist preached, a message of repentance. Turn from your sins and turn to God. And in preaching that, he made the way of the Lord straight. He made it easier. He made it smoother. He did his job. And this repentance also included what we call confession. It means to agree fully, to say the same thing. So in other words, what God calls sin, we call sin. And so those people repented and they confessed their sin. They said, yes, I agree with God. This lifestyle, what I said, what I did, what I thought is sin. They confessed it. They repented of it. They turned from it. They turned toward God. And I like what it says in Proverbs chapter 8. I'm sorry, chapter 28, and it's in verse 13. Again, that's Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. It says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. If you want to experience the mercy of God, don't be full of pride, but instead humble yourself. Say the same thing as God. God, you call that sin? Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I do confess that as sin. I agree with you. And, and I'm sorry. I turn from that sin and I turn to you. And a person who covers that sin and refuses to repent, who refuses to confess it, the scripture said again in Proverbs 28, 13, they will not prosper. I wonder if some people are not prospering in their walk right now. They're not prospering in life right now because they refuse to confess their sins to God. They refuse to humble themselves and say, God, yes, I was wrong. I'm sorry for that sins. I'm sorry for that sinful lifestyle. Could that be something that's in the way of walking in a prosperous way? Even if we are Christians, 
Yes, we can confess our sins and repent them and repent to God so that our fellowship with him will not be hindered. But then we also saw that, that when people confessed and they repented of their sins, John the Baptist baptized them. And he baptized them using water in the Jordan River. And so that was added to his message of repentance, of making the Lord's way straight and smoother to people's hearts. That word baptized, by the way, means to dip, to immerse or submerge. In other words, it means to completely cover. That's what submerge means. And so this water baptism, it was just an outward showing of the fact that, yes, I repented. They repented of their sins. They confessed their sins and turned to God. It was just an outward showing of of what they've done in their hearts. And John the Baptist led them to that place, baptized them in, in that water, in that Jordan River. But John the Baptist says something interesting because at one point, some religious leaders had come out to the place where he was baptizing people in water. And, and he told them to, to bear fruit that's worthy of repentance. In other words, he's saying that true repentance is going to have fruit. It's going to have results and works that'll match up. You can't say you repented, but then live the same way, water baptism or not. That true repentance, John the Baptist told those religious leaders in another gospel account, it's going to involve some fruit that's going to match up with that. And so that, that water baptism that John the Baptist performed, it actually looked forward to Jesus. And I mention that because The baptisms that Christians practice today, we look back to Jesus. We look back to what he has done. We look back to his death, his burial, and resurrection. Because, yes, the water baptism that believers, that Christians participate in today, it does show repentance in our heart. It is an outward sign of that. Just like John the Baptist's water baptism But what's added to that is that it's also a picture of Christians who have been identified, who are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So not only is the water baptism today for Christians saying that, hey, I've repented, I've turned from my sin, I've turned toward God, I'm committed to God, but it's an outward showing of what took place in our lives spiritually, and it's saying that the old me is dead. That, that person that I used to be, the person who used to think and dwell on those sinful thoughts, that person who used to use that foul, foul language all the time, that person who used to tell those coarse jokes all the time, that, that person who used to use those, uh, those dirty things or do those dirty things or sinful things, that, that person has been buried in that watery grave. That person is dead. It's an outward showing of what happened in our lives spiritually. 
But then as we come up out of that water, it is a picture of the fact that we're we're raised to life. Spiritually speaking, we have a new life. We are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And in verses 6 through 8, it says, Now John was clothed. Still talking about John the Baptist here. He was clothed with camel's hair and with the leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts, which was a type of grasshopper. And he also ate that with wild honey. And he preached saying, there comes one after me who's mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 3.11 and Luke 3.16, we see the two words and fire added to the fact where, to, to where it says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It says and fire as well. Again, in Matthew 3.11 and Luke 3.16, if you want to write that down. And where it says that he baptizes us and with fire, it, it is speaking of future judgment. Speaking of future judgment, that if you're a believer today, that's not something you have to worry about. We only die once, but we live twice in Christ. We live now physically, die once as believers, and then we'll live again. But for the person who has not repented and put his or her faith or trust in Jesus Christ, there there are two deaths. There's the physical death and then there's the eternal death, the eternal separation from God in a place called hell. And Jesus taught about that. But what we see in this scripture here as as we are beginning to wrap this study up, we see that John the Baptist was a man who did his job faithfully. He was faithful in doing his job. And part of the reason he was so successful is that he did something what I call stay in his lane. John the Baptist was successful because he stayed in his lane. And metaphorically, that means that he minded his own business. Or in other words, he took care of his own assignment instead of trying to do someone else's assignment or mind someone else's business. He stayed in his lane. One of the secrets to his success of doing his job faithfully. And so the question I have for us tonight is, are we staying in our lane? Are we minding our own business when it comes to spiritual things? Are we taking care of our own assignments when it comes to doing the work of God? Are we staying in our own lanes? I've told many people this, especially those who've come on Wednesday nights, and of course, many of my family members know that I used to run track and field in high school. And in track and field, I, I ran the, the 400 meter race, the four by one relay, the 200 meter race, and then the four by four, which people call the mile relay. And we were assigned lanes on the track. And if a person were to move outside of their lane and run in the lane that was not assigned to him or her, they would be disqualified. 
not only would they be disqualified, like let's say if they finished in second, first, maybe third place, that, that wouldn't even show up on the records. Even if you broke a record, that wouldn't show up because you were disqualified, you were out of your lane. But not only would you be disqualified, you, you would also get in the way of others. You would impede someone else's progress. And so the question I have for us tonight is, are we getting in God's lane? Are we impeding what God wants to do in and through someone's life? Are we staying in our lane? And we can stay in our lane and not interfere with God's work by looking to what John the Baptist did. We can learn some things from John the Baptist. One thing we can learn from John the Baptist in order so we can, for us to stay in our lane just like he did is the fact that he had a correct view of Jesus. In verse 7, he says, there comes one after me who is mightier than me. He understood who Jesus was. He's somebody who is not on my level, but he is mightier than me. And so the question I have for all of us tonight is, what is our view of Jesus? Do we understand that this is one who is mightier than we are? He is not just fully human, but as we talked about earlier, this is the Son of God. He is fully God. He is deity. A second thing we can learn from John the Baptist is not only did he have a correct view of Jesus, but he had a correct view of himself. Because John the Baptist felt that he wasn't even worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of Jesus' sandals. And if you look in Matthew 3, 11, it says, or even carry them. So I'm not worthy enough to stoop down I'm to, to untie Jesus's sandals, and I'm not worthy enough to carry them. And that was a slave's job, one of the lowest tasks of a slave. And he wasn't worthy enough to do those things in his view. And so he had a correct view of himself. Do we have that correct view of ourselves? Yes, we know we're not worthy in and of ourselves. But the amazing thing about that is that he chooses to use us anyway. He chooses to love us anyway. Another lesson we can learn from John the Baptist is that he did not try to upstage Jesus. Notice what he wore. It says that he was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. He, he didn't dress in fancy clothes as if he were a king because he knew who the true king is. He didn't try to upstage Jesus. And so the question for us is, are we trying to upstage Jesus? Have we been upstaging Jesus? Are we doing things or behaving in a way that takes glory away from God? that take glory away from the one who truly deserves the credit. Another thing, the final point that we can learn from John the Baptist to help us to stay in our lane, to mind our own business, to, to, to make sure we do our own assignment, is that John the Baptist knew his role. He knew his role because when priests and Levites came to him in John chapter 1, asking him who he was, he told them that he was not the Christ. But instead, he was just the voice of one crying in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord. And he knew that he wasn't the one who was baptizing with the Holy Spirit. 
He knew that his element that he was using to baptize people with was water from the Jordan River. But he knew that Jesus is the one who baptizes people with the Holy Spirit. And what I mean by that is, what John the Baptist meant by that, that Jesus baptizes people with the Holy Spirit, is that he empowers his believers, his followers to be witnesses for him. He empowers believers to do his work. And so we need that outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon our lives to be effective witnesses and to be effective in the work of the ministry that he called us to. I'm going to call the worship team to the stage. Because like John the Baptist, what we need to do is understand our role. We need to learn that lesson from him. But unfortunately, some of us try to be the Savior. I know we have family members we like to see come to Christ, but we are not the Savior. In fact, just like John the Baptist, we just introduce people to the one who is. That is the one who is the Savior, Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Christ. So in other words, we can bring you to it, but he's the one he bring, who bring you through it. And so, again, we bring you to it, but Jesus is the one who'll bring you through it. So by introducing people to Christ, we bring people to the front door. But Jesus is the one who carries out that process. God is the one who carries out that process of salvation. So like John the Baptist, we encourage people to repent of their sins, to turn to God, to turn to Jesus, to receive him into their hearts. And so we have that privilege, although no, we're not worthy. And so, yes, some of us get out of that role, get out of our lane, and we try to be the Savior. But there's something else that we try to do. We, we, sometimes we get out of our lane, and we try to be the problem solvers. So, yes, there's problems right now. We talked about it tonight or in past nights, about the coronavirus. You see it on the news every day. That is a problem. Some of us have problems in our marriages and with our children or at work or, or in our communities. And so we think that we are the problem solvers. We, we're getting out of our lanes. We have financial situations. And so we think we're God. We try to get in his place. Instead of going to the one who can truly solve these issues, instead of going to the one who for the believer works all things together for good, we try to solve them ourselves. And so I just want to encourage all of us, myself included, because the word of God is for me to, to stay in our lane. If we're getting out of it a little bit, let's get back. Let's do what God called us to do. Let's remember who we are and who he is and what he is able to do. He is Savior. He is the problem solver. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, for those of us who have been trying to do something that only you can do, that, that's something that is reserved for you. We, we pray that you forgive us. And we pray, Lord, that you'll equip us 
for the work you called us to. That you help us to be effective witnesses for you, Lord. And for anyone out there who does not have a personal relationship, didn't say personal religion, I said a personal relationship with Jesus. Ken, like I mentioned earlier in the study, make this the last night that you say that, that you don't have a relationship with him. Make this the last night you say that. And I'll lead you in the prayer. And if you mean it, please repeat after me. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for sending your unique son your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sins. And I know my sins separate me from you. But Jesus removed that barrier. And I confess that I am a sinner. And I ask you to forgive me. And I do believe that not only did Jesus die for me, but that he was raised from the dead. I confess that as well. I believe that in my heart. So I ask Jesus to come into my heart, to become my personal Savior, to become my personal Lord. And I thank you for forgiving me. I thank you that I can now call you Father. I thank you that I am now going to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. If any of you prayed that prayer and you meant it, you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you're going to heaven. You're saved. You're born again. And welcome to the family of God. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to go on to calvaryqueencreek.org. Send us an email, and we would love to get one out to you. And God bless you, and God keep you. We'll have one last song from our worship team. Thank you all for watching and worshiping the Lord with us. God bless you.
Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.